All right, great again to see everybody. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We are going to be in 1 Corinthians 11, specifically verses 23 through 34 today. And again, we are continuing our One Another series. So we heard from Joe Bryant and Josh Matthews, two other elders in other passages of Scripture. There's multitude of one another's in the New Testament, and we're going to be exploring those together as a church over the summer. Specifically, these one another passages help us see and understand how the gospel applies to the day-to-day life of a local church, like us, Gresham Bible Church. So that's what we're going to see together in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 today. And in our passage, we're going to see specifically, Paul is going to make an argument And his argument is going to conclude in verse 33. He tells this church they're to wait for one another. When they gather to take the Lord's Supper, they're to wait for one another. And we're going to see in his argument the reason he's having to argue this, there's a problem his argument is addressing, is because they weren't waiting for one another. They said one thing they believed, but they acted totally 180 degrees opposed to their professed belief. That's the argument we're going to see Paul address here in 1 Corinthians 11. And so I'm curious, as I've been thinking about this passage all week and and preparing to study, I'm curious for you if you can think of a time in your life maybe where you can remember someone who said one thing, but then they did another, right? Can you think about a moment like that? Or if we're being really honest, maybe you can think of a time you have done something like that. I know I can As I was thinking about this this week, Grace, I'm sorry I didn't ask for your permission to share this first, but here we go. So Grace shared with me recently, our oldest daughter Grace works at Chick-fil-A. One of her friends from school, her friend's family uh, say they're vegans, right? So that means they don't eat meat, they don't eat animal products. Great, I guess, right? So Grace is working at Chick-fil-A, and guess who shows up? Her friend's dad. And we all know what's Chick-fil-A known for, their vegan food or their fried chicken sandwiches, right? So Grace in this moment notices the dad like, hey, wait a minute, I thought you guys were vegans. And specifically, she notices him, right, as he has, if I'm remembering it rightly, a fried chicken sandwich. And as chance would have it, or for my own enjoyment, their eyes meet in that moment, and there's just this shame, like he's a caught criminal, like, oh, we're vegans and you're catching me with a fried chicken sandwich. That makes me laugh for so many different reasons, because we've all been there in different ways, and because even vegans can admit Chick-fil-A sandwiches are delicious, right? So there's this disconnect between what he professed and what he actually did in regards to a delicious Chick-fil-A fried chicken sandwich. But again, That's highlighting a reality we all know in the world around us and in our own experience in our day-to-day life, isn't that a normal thing we see? Someone says one thing, but their actions show another thing entirely. So that's what we're going to see here in 1 Corinthians 11, and specifically in regards to the day-to-day life of a local church as brothers and sisters in Christ— Our behavior should be consistent with the gospel we profess, so therefore we should wait for one another. So let's pray together before we dig in and enjoy 1 Corinthians 11 together. So please join me in prayer. Father God, we praise you for your steadfast love and for your faithfulness. 
We all come here today, Lord, bringing so many things with us. Father, I pray that you will center us, that you will quiet our noisy and anxious hearts. Prepare our minds and our hearts now to hear from you today through your word. Give us ears to hear and hearts to treasure beautiful and wonderful things today about you and your gospel. Father, we need to hear from you today. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Give us hearts to confess, repent, and believe. Open your word to us and open us to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so follow along with me as I read 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 34. This is God's word. Verse 23. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged." But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So specifically, put your finger on the text, ground yourself in verse 33. What's it say? So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So notice the so then. It's a concluding argument he's been making. Then he lands the plane and says, so then, in light of what I've been arguing, wait for one another when you gather. Paul is addressing again a problem in the life of the Corinthian church, and the problem is that they weren't waiting for one another. And Paul's going to address this problem which really, when you think about it, it's a lack of gospel culture, and he's going to address it with the remedy of gospel doctrine, of who Jesus is and what he's done. So here's where we're going to go today. Three points of emphasis from our text. We're going to follow Paul's argument about why we should wait for one another. First is remember, second is proclaim, and third is anticipate. So first, remember, Let's start with fix your attention on verses 23 through 25. There, Paul says that Jesus, Jesus himself, established the ordinance or the sacrament of communion. This wasn't Paul's idea or an invention. This was established by Jesus, right, with his disciples before he went to the cross. And he's going to quote Jesus here, that when Christians take the Lord's Supper, we're to do so in remembrance of Jesus. He quotes Jesus here excuse me, and says, in remembrance of me. So what's the problem Paul is addressing here? If he's making an argument and he's saying, do this, that means they're not doing it, and he's trying to help them out. 
So in 1 Corinthians, what's really cool when you study the whole book, kind of bringing us to where we are here in chapter 11, if you go back to Acts chapter 18, you can read about it, but Paul himself planted this church back in Acts chapter 18. He's been gone from them for about two years, and then he starts hearing crazy stories. Hey, this church that I planted that professed the gospel, wait, they're doing what? They're not doing what? And then he writes 1 Corinthians to address these problems to the church that he planted. Basically, when you read the whole book of 1 Corinthians, their behavior as a life of a church in a local church was out of step with the gospel. So that's what he's addressing here. And then what's interesting when you think about what Paul's doing, why would he start with, right, we're tracing his argument, why does he start with remember? Because if a church isn't waiting for one another in different ways we're going to see here in a minute, it's because practically they've forgotten. They've forgotten who Jesus is, what the gospel is, and who they are in light of it. So again, this group of believers professed one thing, gospel doctrine, but they lacked gospel culture in how they actually truly treated one another. So we have to ask, how was this church forgetting Jesus? If Paul's saying, remember, that means they're forgetting. What are they actually forgetting? And when you look right before our passage today, so remember we're starting in verse 23 and verses 17 through 22, we see this wasn't a small problem. This was a big problem in the life of the Corinthian church. They were basically, they met together as a church in their weekly gathering, more probably in the later afternoons or early evening in that culture, because they had to work all day long, right? So what's funny in looking at this, like, hear this, the early church loved potlucks too. Like, how cool is that? So so when we gather to have potlucks, we're within the stream of orthodoxy. We're consistent with the early church. That's good news right there. But they would gather together, have a potluck, and then they'd have church and take communion. But when they gathered for this potluck, those who were more well-to-do in their body, who maybe didn't have to work or not work as much, they could show up early, whereas the working class people would have to work as much as they can, and they'd probably show up a little bit later. Well, guess what these people with well-to-do means were doing? You can see it yourself, right, in verses 17 through 22. They show up early. They don't wait for those who have to work more in their church, and they eat all the mac and cheese, they eat all the fried chicken, they even eat all of Ann Stump's amazing chocolate chip cookies before like a fair number of the church comes in, right? This is not okay. And look at verse 21. What are they even doing? They're drinking the wine that's going to be used for the Lord's Supper. It's there for the potluck too. They drink most of the wine to get drunk before church even starts. Like this is not okay. This is not in alignment with the gospel. They're professing gospel doctrine, but their behavior is not in alignment with the gospel itself that they're professing. So really, when you think about it, right, if, if I don't wait for someone or something, it's really because I'm being selfish. You could say it's impatience. You could say it's a lot of different things, probably some flavor of pride mixed in, but it really at its core, it's because I'm being selfish, right? I'm thinking about myself, my needs, my wants before someone else. So these rich brothers and sisters in the Corinthian church come first to the potluck and they're only thinking about themselves. They're not waiting. The problem is a selfishness problem. They were a forgetful people when they gathered, right? They were just thinking about themselves. They weren't thinking about Jesus and who other people are because of who Jesus is. So Paul, being the good gospel practitioner he is here, 
He diagnoses the problem, which is forgetfulness, right? He's saying to remember, it's basically they're functioning as they have gospel amnesia. They're forgetting who Jesus is, what he's done, and who they are. And then, being a good gospel practitioner, he prescribes the cure. And what is the cure? It's gospel doctrine, what is true about Jesus and therefore true about who they are. So the cure for their waiting problem was specifically to remember the cross of Jesus. He says, remember, he's starting his argument in verses 23 through 25. Specifically, let's read it together. What does verse 23 and 25 say? For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So this remembrance here, it's not just like you're remembering historical facts that you crammed the night before to pass a test. This is like an active, ongoing remembrance. It means more than just recalling a fact or a prior event. It's a present continuous remembering. Keep on remembering again and again and again. Remember who Jesus is and what he's done. Keep on remembering Christ's sufferings for you is what Paul is telling the Corinthian church here. And in the Lord's Supper, think about it, we're going to take it together here in a few minutes as a church family. In the Lord's Supper, God has given us physical, tangible elements to remember. It's not just a distant, foggy remembering. It's a remembering of Jesus' broken body on the cross for you, of his spilt blood for you. That's what we do when we remember. The elements are given to us to remember. And really, to put some biblical language, even theological language around it, what we are to remember is the substitutionary atonement of Jesus on the cross for your sin. That's what we're remembering. God's people are called to remember that beautiful, glorious reality and truth when we take communion together. So again, the Lord's Supper, it's instituted by Jesus to his followers, and the bread and the wine, they're intended to stir our hearts and our minds in worship of remembrance. And again, I I want us to really get this. This remembrance, again, it's not just factual It's not just academic. It's not just like a statement of true fact. It's personal for you. It's remembrance of me, Jesus says, for you and your sin. That's what we're to remember when we take the Lord's communion. That's what they're forgetting in the Corinthian church when they're not waiting for each other, that Christ's substitutionary atonement, his sacrificial death on the cross, is for each of our individual sins that we rightly deserve God's wrath, but we're given grace because of Jesus. So again, it's a personal remembrance. And in this remembering, there's also a personal response of confession and repentance. It's in partaking of the bread and the cup that we declare that Jesus gave his body and his blood. What does Jesus say? For me, for you, for Mike, he gave it for me, for each of you here within the sound of my voice as our church. Jesus died for each of our sin and declares God's punishment for my sin is fully satisfied. When we take the communion elements, we're remembering it is finished. 
for Mike Dahl's sins, past, present, and future. It's finished. I'm remembering that personal, sacrificial love of Jesus on the cross for me, for you, right? This is a different type of remembering that sometimes that we bring to the text. We want to let the text speak over us. Our remembering at the table in the Lord's Supper, it works like a gospel reset every time we take it for forgetful people like us. Just like the Corinthian church, just like us now, we're prone to forgetfulness, so we're called to remember. When, when we remember, we reflect on the perfect love of Jesus. Again, a self-sacrificial kind of love, not a selfish love that the Corinthians are showing here. That's what we're to remember. So the argument here in 1 Corinthians is we're to wait for one another. Well, why? The first reason why is to remember. Remember what? The cross-shaped love of Jesus. So here in 1 Corinthians, Paul is admonishing them. He's rebuking them in love, but rebuking them because basically they were acting more like Corinthians than Christians, right? They were thinking about themselves before others. They were being selfish. They weren't waiting they were being more selfish rather than selfless. They were reflecting the culture around them at that time in the city of Corinth more than the culture of Jesus. Because a lack of gospel culture in any local church shows a disconnect with gospel doctrine. That's the argument the Word of God is making for us on the pages right in front of you. So practically, Paul is saying, remember Jesus and be who you are right? So wait for one another. That's how this argument is working and how it should work in our hearts. So I just want us to camp here for a minute and reflect like we're called to do when we take of the Lord's communion together. So I'm curious, where in your life do you need to remember the body and blood of Jesus? Is there an area perhaps of selfishness in your life that shows there's a disconnect between the gospel doctrine you profess and how you actually treat other people. Where specifically, don't just say in theory, name it. Where specifically in your life is that disconnect? Because if we're being honest, we all have that somewhere in our life. Now hold on to that, whatever that is, however you respond to that question, where is that in your life? And then what's the fix for that? What's the remedy? How do you move forward out of that place? Well, if we're making an argument and trying to be healed like what God's word here is showing us in front of us, it's to remember the sacrificial love of Jesus for you, applied to you personally. Anything outside of that, you can mask that selfishness. You can pretend it doesn't exist. You can manage it in different ways and even self-help self -help, self -help tips but it's not going to fix it. It's not going to heal it. Only the personal sacrificial love of Jesus applied to your heart in remembrance of me is actually going to turn that around into a selfless kind of love for you. Because when you, we boil it all, all down, we all act selfishly towards one another. And when we do that, we're acting like we've forgotten this type of love of Jesus. So there's a, can't we see there's a reason why Paul is addressing this forgetfulness problem with first this remembering, calling them to remember who Jesus is, who they are in light of that. So therefore, so then, wait for one another. 
And when you think about it, Josh Howith encouraged me with this. He encouraged the elder team with this. Probably a lot of you have read this in different ways over the years. But Christian ministry, when you give like the thesis statement to it, all it is is remembering, helping one another remember who Jesus is and who we are in the gospel. It's the same thing Paul's doing here. We remember who Jesus is and who we are in light of that. That's the essence of Christian ministry. Because when we remember the cross of Jesus, how can we not trust that God is good? When we remember, how can we not trust in God's proven character to provide what we need and when we need it, individually and corporately? When we remember Jesus, how can we not put others' needs ahead of our own? When we remember the length Jesus took to give of himself to save us, how can we not share the gospel with the non-Christians in our life? When we remember Jesus, how can we not wait for one another? This text should sit on us and do good things in us, okay? We're to wait for one another because we remember who Jesus is. So Christian, here in a few minutes, when we take of the bread and the cup to remember Jesus, plant your sin at the table. Plant it at the foot of the cross. Confess and repent of your selfishness and ask for God's gracious forgiveness to cover that, right? Rest in the gospel as you take communion. Even bring your worries, your disappointments, your misplaced shame, your if-only-thens. What's going to happen? Give it to Jesus. He's proven for all time he's good. We were to remember Jesus. And this brings us to the second point of our passage today, the second point of the argument. Why are we to wait for one another? First, it's because we remember. Secondly, it's to proclaim. So in the Lord's Supper, not all, only are we looking back, right, back to the cross, we're remembering Jesus' substitutionary atonement. For me personally, Paul says there's another dynamic that's happening here at the same time as well. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So again, in the Lord's Supper, not only do we look back and remember, there's also there's this nowness to it, right? There's this proclaiming. Proclaim here, it means to announce or herald something. It's similar to the word that's used for preaching. And when you herald something, proclaim something in this way, you're basically heralding, proclaiming victory. Like when one nation would beat another nation in war, you're heralding, hey, we've won, right? So you're proclaiming the Lord's death in the Lord's Supper in this kind of way. We're proclaiming King Jesus's victorious death and resurrection in our nowness, in our present circumstances when we take of the Lord's Supper like the Corinthian church was doing here. At the Lord's table, we're basically, we're heralding that Jesus is King. When you take the Lord's Supper in a biblical kind of way, you're proclaiming the Lord's death. You're saying Jesus is king, a different kind of king entirely. He rules and he reigns. That's what we're doing when we take the Lord's Supper together. The argument again here, in God's word, I'm not making this up, I want you to see how the argument builds to verse 33. It's that how we live as individual Christians and as a local church family should be in alignment with the glory of this gospel. 
that Jesus is king, that we're proclaiming he's king, that he's victorious, okay? That's what we're doing at the Lord's Supper. And to grow as Christians, we need this finished work of Jesus to flood into our present lives as we abide in him, right? That's what Paul's saying here to the Corinthians. There's a reason why they need to proclaim the Lord's death. Because yesterday's grace is never enough if you're going to grow in Christ-like character through your life, okay? Gas prices are crazy right now. We all know it. But I can only make the gas in the tank in my car go for so long or it's going to run out, right? Jesus' work is finished on the cross, but too often we just try to run off the fumes of it and we don't have grace for today as we're living presently with Jesus and the reality of the cross in our current lives. We're proclaiming that through the Lord's Supper. So practically, as I've been thinking through this text and this argument, okay, how does this apply and address us as a local church family? There's two things I want us to see here that are really important implications. So first, there's the way in which the Lord's Supper is formative for us. And then secondly, there's a, a practical way that communion, the Lord's Supper, applies to us corporately as a church. And we'd be missing it if we didn't press into these two things briefly. So first, communion is formative. So think about all the rhythms in your life, like in your average day or average week. I know about you, if I'm being really honest, I feel guilty when I get my weekly screen report of how many hours I was on it last week, right? Did it go up or down by percentage points? When I'm on my screen, it's doing something to me. It's forming me. It's discipling me in certain ways. No matter what I'm looking at, right? I'm absorbing information, and it's telling me something about the world that's good and true and beautiful. Well, amplify that out, not just on your screens in front of you. The world around us is constantly forming us and shaping us and telling us what the good life is of what's true and not true. That happens whether you know it or not. Every single day you're being formed, right? Well, when we take of the Lord's Supper, it's counterformative. It's actually forming us into what's really good and what's really true. It's good for us to have the regular rhythm, the habit of gathering together, waiting for one another, and taking of the Lord's Supper. So when, when you like diagnose your heart or reflect on this, or maybe with another friend at church, you kind of bounce this around. Like you can profess a lot of good and true things, biblical things, right? But you can still be so shaped by our culture that what you say you believe feels so distant from your day-to-day -day life. It feels like it's just this compartment in your mind that, or heart that, man, that really is not interfacing with my day-to-day -day life. It honestly can feel like you as a Christian, am I really believing in a fairy tale? Like the world around us is shaping us all the time to believe its story. Well, the Lord's Supper works to form us and remind us of what the true story is and who Jesus is, okay? The Lord's Supper is formative for us in a way that's really needed. Because again, if we really think about it, just from even a time standpoint, how much time are you being formed by the world or formed in God's ways? Because the world is not benign. It wants your worship. It really, really does. And if you're not being formed by the gospel, you're being formed by the world, and you're going to be more of a consumerist 
than what's in alignment with the gospel, a more materialist, more individualist. You're going to be focusing on yourself rather than Jesus and his ways. So the Lord's Supper is formative for us, right? Because if it's not, then we're more shaped and molded by our culture than by our Christian confessions. We're more molded by media and our phones than by the message of Scripture. Those, there's multiple dynamics that are happening here. When we proclaim the Lord's death, it is not just a, a neutral thing. It's a good thing when we proclaim it. It shapes us. It forms us. It molds us in certain ways that we need and that are good. So in other words, again, the Lord's Supper, it's formative and transformational because it tangibly applies the gospel to our worship-hungry hearts. The bread and the cup, they remind us of what's real, okay? Of what true truth is, of what the real story is that we live in. And that's the story that Jesus tells us. So the Lord's Supper, it works to disenchant us from our cultural moment, and it lets the grace and truth of the gospel do its work in your heart individually and in our church as a family. The Lord's Supper is good for us because it's formative. And not only that, it's also important that we get and see right here on the pages of Scripture, I want you to really look down at your Bible and see it, that it's not just me making this up. It's also the emphasis on the Lord's Supper is corporate. Okay, I don't want us to miss this. So it's formative and it's also corporate. There's an implication of that here. It's in communion, communion itself, the sacrament, the ordinance of the Lord's table, it's proclaiming that it's designed to be done in the gathering of the local church. I, I, I'm a nerd, those of you that know me. I could talk about this a long time. But I just want to see it real briefly. Who's the book of 1 Corinthians written to? Individuals or a church? The church, right? It's written to the church at Corinth. He's saying remember. So he's remembering it to the church. It's made up of individuals, but the emphasis is on the church. It applies to a specific local church family. And then in verse 33, again, remember his argument? So then, my brothers, wait for one another. That means the waiting is not an individual waiting for something in theory outside of you. It's for a specific people. Your brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, my brothers. So the waiting is for one another. It's to take the bread and the cup when you're gathered together. Wait for one another. So if there's no others, there's no way that you can obey this command here in 1 Corinthians 11. Communion is intended, it's designed to be communal, a corporate activity in the life of a local church. The Lord's Supper is intended for the Lord's church. The Lord's Supper, when you think about it, it's a meal of the kingdom that's eaten in the embassy of Jesus, his church, right? The church is described as the embassy of Jesus. We take a kingdom meal in an embassy. So, so, so here's what I mean. The Lord's Supper is designed to be like a corporate church activity. It's where the many become one, right? Jesus brings the, each of us. He reconciles us. He redeems us. He calls us to himself, and he calls us to a people, to his church. So the Lord's Supper is a family meal that we proclaim the Lord's death individually and corporately. It's called communion because at the Lord's table, you're, you're remembering, you're proclaiming the communion you have with the triune God through the substitutionary atonement of God the Son, right? And then the communion you have with one another. We're called brothers and sisters in Christ. 
That's the dynamic that's happening at the table. And when I was just enjoying this this week, again, I'm trying to just make this argument that the argument is here in 1 Corinthians 11. Like, there's so much to enjoy. But as I was reflecting on this, like, it got a little uncomfortable. It kind of pushed on me in certain ways because I don't know about you. Um, some of you probably had similar experience to me growing up. I was always taught, or maybe I just missed it, but the experience was that communion was more an individual spiritual experience. That was kind of like the mindset I've had about communion. But 1 Corinthians 11 says, well, that's maybe not bad, that's not ultimate. That's what it's ultimately intended to be. So again, as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, man, I'm bringing some of my life experience, my presuppositions that I have in my cultural moment, especially as a Northwesterner, right? We're all like individual, rugged individual. I bring that to how I think about communion. So I'm not trying to be overly dogmatic here, but I just want us to see what does God's word say about the Lord's Supper. We're to wait for one another because we remember and we proclaim the Lord's death. And if you've had like my experience growing up, maybe you can even think of like, a really cool time in your life when you took communion in kind of more that individual way. Like, like I get it. I've had those moments. I'm, I'm not trying to, again, be overly dogmatic here, but I want us to see what the Lord's table is intended to be because when we take it out of the context in which it's designed, which is the local church, I'm not sure that's best, even when we have the best of intentions. So I'm, I'm going to land this for us. I don't know if you know this, but did you know that Buzz Aldrin took communion on the moon? Isn't that cool? Like the first moon landing, Buzz Aldrin, he's an elder in his local church. He brings a communion elements. He goes to the, his other elders at church and says, hey, I know I want to take communion outside of the gathered local church, but I think it'd be a really worshipful experience, the first moon landing to take communion on the moon. I mean, how cool is that, right? Like that brings up you know, the um, Brian Regan stuff about, well, I walked on the moon. Where have you taken communion? I took it on the moon. Like, that's super cool. But when you think about it, it's only proving the point. Like, he asked his church to take communion on the moon because it was on an exception basis. It's not designed to be taken on the moon. <laughs> it's designed to be taken in the life of the local church, right? And so when we take communion outside just the regular life of us together of waiting for one another as a local church family really it's like you're taking it on the moon outside of the home planet of your local church so that there's this corporate element of communion that's so important to the argument here that's happening in first corinthians 11 so the lord's supper is a family meal and it helps us see the church is a family we're proclaiming this when we take the lord's supper together right? Every Lord's Supper since Jesus instituted it, it's a new covenant renewal ceremony where we remember and proclaim how Jesus took the curse of sin so that we could be in right relationship with God and with one another. That's what's happening in communion. So we've seen two points of the argument so far, right? We're to wait for one another, specifically around the Lord's table when we gather because we remember the death of Jesus applied to me. We proclaim the glories of who Jesus is, right? The nowness of the gospel. And then the last emphasis in Paul's argument is anticipate. Look down at verse 26, what we just read, the last part. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In the Lord's Supper, we remember Jesus, we proclaim Jesus, and we anticipate the return of Jesus. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Communion points us not only to what Jesus has done, but what he will do. Jesus will return. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of that every time we take it as a church family when we wait for one another. The Lord's Supper, it points us to the future, and in it we're saying like at the end of the book of Revelation, amen, come Lord Jesus. That's a prayer of our heart when we take the Lord's Supper. This means that in the Lord's Supper, it has a flavor to it, and the flavor is already and not yet, right? We're looking back and remembering, we're proclaiming, and we're anticipating because it's a dress rehearsal for something, isn't it? It's a dress rehearsal for the wedding supper of the Lamb. When we take the Lord's Supper together, we anticipate the return of Jesus, and we anticipate feasting with Jesus together on the new heavens and new earth when we'll celebrate the glory and victory of King Jesus together. These are the things that are happening for God's people when we take of the Lord's Supper, and this helps show why it's so important we have gospel culture that reflects true gospel doctrine. I don't know how much you've thought about this. It does my heart well. Often when we gather to take communion, just to look around the room before you take it and think, in this room, those of us that worship Jesus, like we're going to be at the wedding supper of the Lamb together. The same people you're taking communion with here at this place in Gresham, Oregon, you're going to be with on the new heavens and new earth at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Like that's beautiful. That should do something to us. In the Lord's Supper, we remember and proclaim the cross with reverent gratitude and we anticipate in joyful hope the return of Jesus as we long for the day when there will be no more tears and only joy everlasting. People have asked, like, in communion, should it always be, like, somber? Should it always be reverent? Should it always be hopeful? Yes. Like, there can be different elements and emphases um, from it week to week, but it's all of these things together. As I was thinking about this and just how it points us forward, um, one of my favorite quotes came to mind. Most of you know I just want to share it. J.R.R. Tolkien said this. So fix your eyes on what it means that supper points us to the wedding, Lord's Supper points us to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Tolkien said this, everything sad is going to come untrue and it will somehow be greater for having been broken and lost. That's the reality the Lord's Supper points us to. Communion whets our appetite for heaven. So remember, Paul's been making this argument that the church should wait for one another because of all of this glorious gospel truth. There's a reason why he's saying wait for one another. It's in response to something. But we're going to miss it. The last thing we just need to press into briefly here is in verses 27 through 32, we also need to examine ourselves when we come to take the Lord's Supper. Verses 27 and 28 specifically say this. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup.
So what's that mean to examine yourself before you take the Lord's Supper? There's a lot that could be said, but in its essence, the word examine here means to test yourself like you would test a metal to determine what type of metal it is, right? So you're to examine yourself. Are you a follower of Jesus is what it's saying here. Examine yourself when you take the Lord's Supper. This means that we examine ourselves by seeing how are we living, how we're believing, how are we trusting in ways that are consistent with the gospel. Am I saying I profess gospel doctrine, but my life is not in alignment with that? That's what we're examining when we take the Lord's Supper together. In communion, we reflect on the cross and we consider, are my thoughts, attitudes, words, and actions in alignment with the gospel? Is there integrity between my interior life and my outer life? Are those things synced up? In that examining really is when you see yourself truly. You see yourself truly as a great sinner in need of a great Savior. That's what's happening at the Lord's Supper. And then when we partake of it, like in verse 24, we partake of it with gratitude, with thanks, reminding ourselves of how amazing Jesus is, how amazing his grace is. And then Paul gives a warning here in this examining, a severe warning for those who take the Lord's table, it says, in an unworthy manner. There's, again, a lot that could be said about this. If you want to talk it, more, talk it through more individually with me, I'd welcome that conversation. But at its core, taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner basically means taking it in an unrepentant manner, okay? There is no one worthy enough to take communion. That's the whole point. We need the worthiness of Jesus. If you wait until you're worthy enough to take the Lord's Supper, you will never take the Lord's Supper again. You're only worthy enough to take it through the worthiness of Jesus. And again, that's the whole point. That's why we need that reminder because we're prone to forget. So in this examining, we gaze at Jesus, we remember, we proclaim, we anticipate. That's three things. And then we glance, we examine at ourselves. Is my life in alignment with this beautiful, glorious gospel I'm proclaiming? And because of this finished work of Jesus, we're honest with ourselves in this examining. We have nothing to hide. There's no identity you need to protect. Honestly, you can't come to the communion table and impress God in view of the cross. Okay, you need to be honest as you examine yourself. So at the table, we confess and repent of where and how our lives don't line up with Jesus and his sacrificial love, and then we trust in the perfect and completed work of Jesus Christ. That's what's happening. That's this basis, this foundation, the why behind we're to wait for one another as a church family. Because we're all out of tune with the gospel in some way, and the Lord's table works like a life-giving gospel reset, retuning the guitar of our heart that's out of tune. It retunes it with the gospel. In regards to like this core of they weren't waiting because they were selfish, uh, this guy, maybe some of you know him, his name is Greg Gilbert, he said, self-regard dies at the foot of the cross, okay? You wait for one another because of Jesus at the foot of the cross. So the tangible nature of the Lord's Supper, it's tangible. We take it each week. It should help highlight that disconnect, that area of your life 
where you aren't in step with the gospel, where you aren't visibly and tangibly living in a way that adorns the gospel, where you're not loving others in a way that adorns the gospel. The elements are tangible because our lives are tangible and we need to be reflecting the worth and worthiness of Jesus in our lives as Christ followers. So as we move to a close, communion is a gift to us, isn't it? And the reason it's a gift to us, like when you think about all these things, like I'm seeing a lot of heads nod and think about this week, yes, amen to the remember, amen to the proclaim, but we're all prone to forget. And we're prone to forget because sin blinds us, doesn't it? Like the sin of my own heart and just the sin of the world around us, it blinds us, it disorients us, it distracts us from the worth of Jesus. Sin lies to us and it starts to numb us. But here in 1 Corinthians 11, remember they weren't waiting for one another because that seemed normal to them. They were Corinthians. That's how they acted. So we need this reminder to live more like Christians as Christ followers. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I'm going to leave you with this. If you were to ever ask a fish to describe its life, do you think out of everything it described, would it say that it lives in water? I don't think it would. I mean, a fish could talk, right? It, it wouldn't even think about it. That's its day-to-day life. Well, that's kind of how we can be, right, in our day-to-day lives. But the Lord's Supper, it helps us see the water. It helps us see the water of our sin and our need for a great Savior. Through the gospel, we're to wait for one another as we wait on God who graciously waits for us. Through communion, there's this echo we have, and it's Isaiah 30, verse 18, and that says, Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. So I'm going to read a quote here, and then we're going to close. And as is our norm, here in a few minutes, an elder is going to come and lead us in taking of communion. I want you to start preparing your hearts in, what, in light of what you've heard today to remember, to proclaim, to anticipate, examine yourself before you take the Lord's Supper. There's this quote that captures kind of the essence of the Lord's table here. It's by Paul Tripp. It says this, the DNA of sin is selfishness. Sin inserts me into the middle of my universe, the one place reserved for God and God alone. Sin reduces my field of concern down to my wants, my needs, and my feelings. Sin really does make it all about me. The biggest protection against the kingdom of self is not a set of self-reformative defensive strategies. It's a heart that's so blown away by the right here, right now glories of the grace of Jesus Christ that you're not easily seduced by the lesser temporary glories of that claustrophobic kingdom of one the kingdom of self. Please join me in prayer. Father, we praise you for the gospel. We praise you for the glories of the gospel. Lord, I pray for us as Gresham Bible Church, Lord, may we wait on one another and wait on you because we remember, we proclaim, and we anticipate who Jesus is and all he's done in the gospel. We praise you for the cross. Lord, if there are any here today that still haven't trusted in Jesus, I pray you will draw them to yourself by your spirit. 
I pray that even through communion today, some will see their great need for Jesus, turn from their sin, and entrust their lives to Jesus. Lord, for those of us that have trusted in Jesus, I pray you will bring us fresh joy through the gospel because you called us, because we're loved in God, and because we're kept for Jesus Christ. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.